Hello and welcome. I'm Heather. And I'm Laura. We're sweet, sweet death. Here Yay. we are. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we almost didn't, it almost didn't happen again. Yeah. But here we are. We did it. <laughs> Talking about The Last of Us, hanging Ooh. out, waited for an hour for my computer yeah. to reboot. We're good. <laughs> but yeah, I have The Last of Us paused and you were just saying you were annoyed that it's it's steering away from the, yeah. the I game. Mean, I think they're going to bring it back, but that last episode, I don't know. I just want people to know The Last of Us the way I know it. So if they haven't played the game and they're watching the show and thinking that's how it is, that makes me mad. <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to uh, I went to Denver yesterday. Oh, yeah. My friend's birthday. Oh. Just smoked weed and hung out. and nice. It was nice. Yeah. I ran to Poor Richard's to grab her some presents on Saturday because oh. I did not buy her a present it's my best friend yeah. i've known my whole life <laughs> it was like i forgot oh is it that one uh chick that i met or no i don't know did you meet the her? one we went to oh damn it laura sorry the one we went to um the hot spring together with oh yeah that was her yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. yep, yep, yep. so when i bought her like a candle i bought her a magnet and then a couple teas that was it oh. and then the bag that i bought said this is literally the least I could do. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I don't really know how much chit chat we're going to get because yeah. I have mine is so fucking long. Yeah. Might as well. Yeah. Plus, I guess if someone's listening to the last episode, they mm-hmm. want to get right to the rest of the story of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Did you want to go first and then we can like make the people wait oh. for Muhammad Ali? You want to? I'm yeah. down for that. Because otherwise, if, if I go first, you won't go. Okay. No. <laughs> um, all right. Sorry. Let me pull up my story. I had While you're pulling me. that up, I did write in my notes because I forgot about it. I one night, the night we were supposed to record, mm-hmm. but we had to push it back. Um, I was pulling on a headphone cord. It was like stuck under something, like under some blankets, and I don't know why I forgot that. Like, if you pull on a stretchy cord. And it finally breaks free. It's going to like all that energy is going to snap back right in your fucking face. So I got hit in the eye with my (gasps) headphone cord like an idiot. So I wrote it down. I like sat there covering my eye like what (laughs) did I do? That actually reminds me of something terrifying that I saw um, literally like yesterday or the day before. But I've been telling everyone so they don't die. But um, I saw this thing of this these people who they had hooked hooked up like their tow hitch or something like that. I don't know if you've ever seen this. They were like trying to get a car out of like stuck mud. Yeah. And it wasn't like coming out. And so they were like, oh, we need like a running start type thing. So they backed up and then like drove like really fast to like pull. Yeah. But then the tow hitch like snapped off because oh, it's not like yeah. made to withstand that weight. Yeah. And then all that energy, yeah, like snapped back, went through the windshield. <gasps> What? And killed the dude in no. the other car. But yeah, I was like, oh my gosh. But then I, in all the comments, it was like, this is why you pop your hood to your car when you try to tow and this and that. And yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And like all the stuff. But I was like, wow. I was like, I didn't know that could happen. But <laughs> yeah. it scared me. <laughs> Holy shit. I was like, wow, that's a crazy way to die. But I know we said don't do chit chat. But real quick, that reminds <laughs> me of another way. Where it was, uh, it was some like reality TV star. This was like at least 10 plus years ago where this reality TV star died from mudden have you ever do you know what mudden is <laughs> no okay so the you first time you said that I was like really yep <laughs> mudden mudden that's not how else do you say it no so like it you just get in your truck and you if it's like a big rain and there's a ton of dirt and you just make big grooves in the mud and oh, you okay. spin around and your truck sort of like spinning in snow i guess yeah. but mud but i i guess something that's dangerous is people if they're not paying attention their their exhaust pipe can get like filled with the mud Mm -hmm. and then it's carbon monoxide poisoning and this guy like died they got stuck and they were trying to get out but they had the windows rolled up and they fucking died because they were trying to get out of this mud that's so crazy do they not can they not feel like when it's happening like oh i feel kind of like i don't know i guess they didn't so so crazy who knows i don't know maybe like alcohol was involved and they just were not (laughs) with it i don't know things up yep there's two (laughs) mudden yeah and what were we talking about (laughs) getting stuck in the mud yep (laughs) (laughs) all right all right shit do you want to just get yeah all right i'll do my story i feel like it's just gonna be so short compared to my 
fucking essay that I had to write, maybe, but that's maybe. just me being over ambitious, so you're right. fine. Okay, yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about uh, one of the darker parts of history that took place in Hickman, Fulton County, Kentucky on October 3rd of 1908. Uh, so in 1908, there was a particularly <laughs> horrible chain of events um, and murders that took Oh my gosh, sorry. It's okay. It's hard reading it on my phone. Okay. Anyways, murders due to the um, acquisition of Real Foot Lake by the Tennessee Land Company. And it's like real, like R-E-E. Oh, I don't know why those double letters make me sound like real country, but okay. (laughs) Real? Real. I don't know. Um, Anyways, so obviously I'm going to be talking about the one story um, that happened in particular, but it all kind of started because of this other shit that happened in Tennessee. So it's kind of like Kentucky and Tennessee. So Mm -hmm. sorry. But yeah, so um, in Northwestern Tennessee, (laughs) I just realized how much I have this real foot lake in here and now I just have anxiety about it. (laughs) Okay. But um, yeah, so real foot lake was a popular lake among the locals of the town in North in the Northwest that they heavily relied upon. It was used for fishing and farming so when they heard that it was going to be taken and converted for private use, a lot of people were obviously pissed off. Um, Real Foot Lake was formed by the New, Ma- New Madrid earthquakes of 1811 and 1812. And as a result of those um, earthquakes, water overflowed the banks of the Mississippi River and um, pretty much made the present day lake and I don't know how to say this word, Obion counties. Sounds good. Okay. Um, A lot of this water remained and formed a body of water that is the 23 square miles um, and about an average depth of five feet, which is the real foot lake, whatever. Okay, so after the Chickasaw Indians were forced out of this area in the early 1800s, settlers began to move in. It was easy for farmers to feed their families by fishing the lake as well as supplementing their own incomes by fishing the lake. Uh, And by 19 or by the 1900s, when our story takes place, about 500 families lived by the lake and relied upon it for like fishing and all that crap. So about 20 years prior to this, a man named Jim Harris had begun buying property around the lake. And in 1899, Harris told everyone that he was going to buy the lake and drain it and then farm the land underneath. Uh, So a group of business owners and citizens of the Real Foot Lake area filed a lawsuit aimed at blocking Harris from doing that. Um, This lawsuit made its way to the Tennessee Supreme Court and forced Harris to abandon his plans to drain the lake. But after his death in 1903, his son, Judge Harris, took over the property. And so in 1905, much like his greedy father, his intention to stop all the people from using the lake, um, or he intended to stop all the people from using the lake without paying. Sorry. (laughs) I typed this horribly. They, he intended, whatever. Okay, he was just going to have everyone pay him a fee to use the lake. Okay. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> he formed a business known as the West Tennessee Land Company to own and operate and make a profit from the lake and its shoreline. So the 500 families who made their living and fed their families by fishing on Real Foot Lake felt like they had no other options if they could no longer use the lake. And one of them, Tom Johnson of the Obion County community of Hornbeak, later summarized his point of view in this manner. God saw that we couldn't make a living farming, so he ordered an earthquake, and that earthquake left a big hole. Next, he filled the hole with water and put fish in it. Then he knew we could make a living between farming and fishing. But along comes these rich men who don't have to make no living, and they tell us all that we must not fish the lake anymore, because they owns the lake and the fish God put there for us. It just naturally ain't right. Strange. It ain't no justice. (laughs) Thank you so much <laughs> for adding the accent. <sighs> yeah, so this brings us to another very publicized wave of violence in Kentucky between tobacco farmers from the American Tobacco Company. Um, so to rebel against this, many tobacco farmers began attacking um, tobacco company property owners and farmers who were siding with the tobacco company. And these rebel farmers, otherwise known as basically a terrorist group, donned black hoods and attacked at night on horseback and became known as night riders so a lot of people think they were related to the kkk but there isn't actually any relation 
but I do believe a lot of them were just like racist pieces of shit. So that too. Um, so, anyways, this was all basically happening close to the border of Kentucky and Tennessee. So obviously there was some overlap and influence from both states. Like when I looked this up, like um, the lake was like twenty minutes from uh, wherever this other place in Tennessee is. So mm-hmm. it was like super close. It was basically like the same place. So whatever. So. Um, with every th- everything happening in Kentucky, the residents near Rilfa had been inspired to also form form basically like their own group of night riders who did a lot of horrible things. Like I feel like I could have like a whole other like podcast episode of like all these like crazy things. Like if you look up like night riders and all this shit, like they did some horrible stuff. But um, anyways, the um at this time the locals were resisting the expansion of the co- cotton economy in this area, which had been dominated by um i don't know how to say this word yeoman yeoman i don't know yeoman (laughs) (laughs) farmers will you spell it for me it's y-e-o-m-e-n oh i don't know i don't know yeoman farmers um whatever basically it's like it just means like cotton in the area means slaves and so therefore african-americans um by the 20th century, some African Americans in Fulton County had become landowners, and among them was David Walker, who had a 21 and a half acre farm a few miles from Hickman, where he and his wife were raising a large family. Um, they had built their log cabin farmhouse, and for months, these terrorist groups hanged, beat, and threatened other locals in the area with violence extending to threats and, you guessed it, lynchings of African Americans to drive them out of the area. So on the night of October 3rd in 1908, David Walker and his family of seven kids, including a baby, um, were all lynched at the hands of a group. Oh my god, a baby? Yeah, like a little tiny baby, um, by a group of 50 night riders. So the lynching took place after David had an altercation uh, with a white man, which, I don't know, knowing all the stories that we've heard, like who knows really if he was actually provoked um by the guy and the dude started all or whatever blown out of or proportions but um yeah so on that night a group of 50 night riders showed up to david's home on his land and demanded that he leave and go with them and naturally he refused so obviously the only logical thing for these shitty people to do was pour cold oil all over the walker family home and set it ablaze walker pleaded for mercy on his family's life and stepped outside but he was met with countless bullets with no hesitation whoa yeah his wife who was still holding their baby in her arms was met with the same fate in a direct quote from another source stated she held in her arms the infant child and begged the night riders for mercy disregarding her pleas the infuriated mob opened fire and a bullet pierced the body of an infant in its mother's arms. A second shot struck the mother in the abdomen and she fell, still holding the dead body of her infant. End quote. Yeah, so their three other children would be the next to die as they were shot by the mob trying to exit the burning home. The oldest of David Walker's sons was the only one who didn't exit but stayed inside of the house where he burned alive. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, So local newspapers covered the story and in one stated, there's hardly a doubt but the oldest son of Walker preferred preferred death by burning rather than placing himself at the mercy of the mob and it's probable that his charred body will be found among the debris yeah so just like super sad um as always with these stories the papers blamed walker with the night um writers claiming he swore at a white woman which was a violation of jim crow custom they claimed he had a bad reputation and described him as a surly negro I also found through my research that there were claims he not only swore at a white woman, which was just the worst thing you could do at that time, I guess, but also pulled a gun on a white man. So either way, um, he was like demonized for everything. And yeah. They like just were like, whatever, he did this. So The fuck? They like the mindset back burn. then yeah. that like I deserve to shoot your wife and your baby and your children and burn your son alive Yeah. because... You might have pulled a gun on a white dude. Yeah. And Maybe. I'm like, what was that white dude doing to you? Is what like I wanna know, you know. I so, hate humanity. Me too. But yeah, so um his land was taken over by his white neighbor who later sold it to another white man. And then Governor Augustus E. Wilson of Kentucky strongly condemned the murders and promised a reward for information leading to prosecution. He denounced the night writers for the lynching of the Walker family, saying 
If two or three men had gone to this poor cabin and murdered this family, the crime would have been or would have shocked humanity with its revelation of incredible weakness, brutality, and dastardly cowardice. That a large number, some fifty men, joined in such a crime multiples or multiplies its cowardliness and wickedness fiftyfold. It makes every member of the band guilty of murder in the first degree. Thank God someone had that. Yeah. What? Who was that that said that? He was the governor, actually, mm-hmm. of Kentucky. So Shit. Yeah. Um, so Wilson said the lynching of the Walker family was, again, um, another, quote, an outgrowth in the logical results of the toleration of the Knight Rider crimes in the state. It is only one step removed from civil war. But yeah, so like I mentioned before, this like group, these people were crazy, dude. Like some of the stories I was finding on them was like Oof. insane. Like, so yeah, and they were just like tolerating it for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, um, as I previously previously stated, this terrorist group over the years um, from 1907 to 1908 committed increasingly destructive crimes in the Black Patch to pa- Tobacco Wars, especially in Kentucky and Tennessee counties to the east of where the Walker family was lynched. They had raided and took control of the Kentucky seats of Princeton, Hopkinsville, and Russellville, Kentucky, destroying tobacco warehouses and tons of stored tobacco of non-PPA farmers and raided major planters in the Crittenden County. As they escaped control of the planters, they made more attacks against African Americans as well. Yeah, so basically, I don't know if I explained it well enough. Sorry, the way it's breaking this up is, mm-hmm. like, confusing me when I read it. But yeah, basically, they didn't want the cotton farmers to come because all the white people were afraid of, like, black people being, okay. like, picking cotton and then also, like, all the shit with the tobacco. Like, they just, like, didn't want anything to change. So anyways, um, uh, they were making more attacks on, like, African Americans at this time. So yeah. Wilson offered a $500 reward for the arrest and conviction of any night Rider who participated in the Walker family lynching. He urged law-abiding citizens to defend themselves, promising a governor's pardon to anyone who shot and killed a night Rider. But obviously, no one ever came forward with any information, despite the story being carried nationally in the papers, and so no one was ever prosecuted. The continued tolerance of this terrorist group, despite a family of seven being burned and shot alive, would eventually... Um, <laughs> I feel like I can't talk today. It's okay. Um, it would eventually um, boil down, like, kind of end with the kidnapping of the West Tennessee Land Company attorneys Rankin and Taylor just two weeks later. So they were drugged from their hotel room. Uh, Rankin was hanged from a tree and shot. Taylor fled into the swamp amid a storm of bullets and was a assumed dead but he had actually hid behind a partially sunken tree for an hour waiting for the night riders to leave and then he proceeded to swim and stagger through the swamps and bayous so on the morning of october 21st taylor reached a friendly farmer who fed him gave him medical aid and alerted authorities by that time he had been missing for 30 hours and traveled more than 25 miles Whoa. yeah i guess they said this dude was a veteran and they actually had more on him too but he was like just like going through these fucking like alligator infested bayous and shit like uh, traveling i don't know i don't know why he didn't get out but he just like went through them for 25 miles like over like the 30 hours so i thought that was kind of crazy because that's like almost like a mile an hour yeah in the swamps but yeah so um i guess the story of his survival was publicized in newspapers across the country because yeah everyone was like this is fucking crazy Mm -hmm. um I wanted to go into more detail on that, but yeah. So anyways, um, this kidnapping slash murder finally forced the governor in Tennessee to show some sort of reaction, and he ordered the National Guard to restore order in the real Foot Lake area. And working with law enforcement officials and hundreds of volunteers, they rounded up about 50 suspects. And then in January of 1909, a jury found eight night Riders guilty and sentenced six of the eight to death. Whoa. But... The fucking Tennessee Supreme Court overturned these convictions because of the way the judge had chosen the jury. So the men mm. were never even tried. Yeah. So and then there's no evidence um, that the Night Riders ever committed another crime in the Real Foot Lake area. So despite the Walkers never getting the justice they definitely deserve, there was finally an end to the Night Riders' reign of terror. And today, Real Foot Lake is a state park and was declared public domain in 1914. Oh shit. Yeah. And then my sources were. Um, something on Wrangler dot line. It was like um, it was like for Black History Month and the untold stories um of the Walker family by Zenob- Zenobia Wiley. Then 
I looked up Wikipedia, like Walker family and also like Knight Riders and like a bunch of other stuff. And then the TNM magazine, Real Foot Lake, Dark History of the Knight Riders, written by Bill Carey. Hmm. Yeah. Damn. Sorry. That's a rough way to go out. Yeah. It's like kind of crazy though. Yeah. Yeah. It feels sad though. And all this stemmed over a fucking a lake. Yeah. Damn. It's like amazing the domino effect yeah. that has. Yeah, that these like crazy group of people were just like going out and doing all this crazy shit and they're like, Oh, this dude fucking said something in my life, let's go fucking kill him. Not only uh, probably not even that, like a rumor happened yeah. that he might have said something about his yeah. wife. Like went to his fucking farm in the middle of the night and was mm-hmm. just like killed him. But yeah, I thought it was like kind of sad and it's kind of just like weird and the story behind it and everything yeah. that was happening so yeah i did think kkk the second he said night riders and hoods and yeah. horses and it was like oh that sounds totally like what they did all the fucking time yeah because they were in like the black hoods and stuff yeah. i was like oh but yeah i mean they were basically the kkk but not but not, they were yeah. white we were black yeah <laughs> so different yeah yeah, but it's kind of sad too. And even looking up like the Walker family and stuff, there wasn't really much more about them. Just like their story, kind of. And I couldn't just find much. Kind of about. peters out. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, pitter patter. Let's get at her. All right. <laughs> let's do Muhammad Ali. Oh shit. Okay. Okay. I found my stuff. Here we go. So, Muhammad Ali Part Two. Um. Here we go. All right. Muhammad Ali, formerly known as Cassius Clay, uh, is finally able to box in 1970 after years of banishment. His return wasn't easy, and people could tell he'd lost some of that magic they'd seen before. At Madison Square Garden in front of thousands of fans, Ali brought uh, fought Oscar Bonavina and took a lot of hits. So I'm just kind of jumping right into it from back when I left off. Uh, he sort of clumsily stumbled about and had completely lost his ability to dance around like he'd done so easily before. He'd been fighting with his hands down in the early days because he was so fast, you know, he could like whip out of the wave in a moment's notice when people would uh, throw a hit at him, but he's slower now and he's not dancing, but his hands are still down. So this is the part of his career where he just starts taking hits because he has, he's never trained any other way. He never trained to keep his hands up. Because he had that ego yeah. that, like, kept him going strong, but, you know, that only lasted for so long. But, um, yeah, you know, he'd lost his style. So since his exile from boxing and the church, the Nation of Islam, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that maybe Muhammad Ali was a little depressed. Yeah. Uh, the show didn't get too much into his mood. I don't know why I wrote that. <laughs> why did I write that? <laughs> too much into his mood what the fuck did i mean sorry okay well I think my... just like yeah like okay how he was feeling I thank guess. you yeah. yep his mood <laughs> <laughs> god damn it oh anyway so he was really sad um and he sought comfort in inappropriate places like the beds of other women that were not his wife's oh. um especially when he was away from home uh, his wife, his current wife at the time, Belinda, would retaliate with her own affairs from being hurt. And it, and it sounded like the relationship was kind of like tumultuous. It was off and on or she'd leave and then come back. That's what it sounded like. It was hard to get a read on toxic that. Toxic AF. Definitely toxic. <laughs> um, so in his first uh, fight back, sorry, I feel like I need to turn the brightness up. In his first fight back, it was set up with the Oscar Bonavia guy, um, Bonavina, sorry, and Muhammad Ali. They he did eventually knock out this Oscar guy, but it took all 15 rounds. Uh, I guess for the spectator, it was a great fight between two men that pummeled the shit out of each other. For the fighters, they walked away that night just a little bit more broken. Some people were even a little taken back at how differently Ali was fighting, like he was just not the same person. So though Ali was able to fight, he was still facing potential prison time for not um, being inducted into the into the army he was still going through his appeal process which was getting rejected up the legal line it went all the way to the supreme court yet again which was his literal like very last chance to avoid jail time for trying to get that conscientious objector status on his draft form um so he's got that weighing on his bat on the back of his mind he's trying to get his career started back up and ali is also talking a big game about how he wants to fight joe frazier who is the current heavyweight title holder 
Um, ever since that first meeting with Joe Frazier, coming into that gym one day, asking Ali for his autograph, the two men were within each other's sights. Muhammad Ali had been relentless in the press about wanting to fight him because, you know, he's got that big mouth. He talks a lot. Um, and his talk always made the papers. So on December 30th, 1970, Joe Frazier and Ali met to discuss the much-anticipated title fight. Joe Frazier, who is definitely... Okay, do you remember when I said, and I edited this out because I I was wrong. I was like, Joe Frazier, isn't that Floyd Mayweather's dad? Oh, yeah, I remember that. No. <laughs> do you want to know who Floyd... Mayweather Jr.'s father is who Floyd Mayweather Sr. Okay. So <laughs> the junior gave me yeah. a hint. <laughs> so yeah, last time I thought and I was wrong, so we cut that out. Anyway, um, okay, but for this fight, each of them was going to be earning, and this was like a record at the time, two point five million dollars with a five million dollar purse for the winner. Wow. So, dude, in nineteen seventy, two and a half million dollars. Fuck. Uh, meanwhile, in January of 1975, Ali went to Miami to train to prepare for what everyone dubbed the fight of the century. Naturally, his trainer wanted him to feel comfortable in his sleeping arrangements, so he set Ali up at an upscale Jewish retirement community called Octagon Towers. O Ali was the first black dude to ever stay there, but I guess the residents loved him, and the video footage of him interacting with these old Jewish people is the most oh. delightful thing I've <laughs> ever seen. One of them, one of the old Jewish guys starts giving Ali shit, and he's like, they're shaking hands, and uh, Muhammad Ali goes, who's gonna win, me or Frazier? And the guy goes, who are you? And Ali, like very dramatically like in a very funny way like storms off like a toddler it was oh, yeah. it was just really funny it was very sweet to watch the everybody kind of interact but um oh. and i guess one woman said she he was just like a good jewish boy <laughs> <laughs> but uh but while there he continued training at fifth street gym the little old entire gym that he had trained at all those years before angelo dundee allowed reporters and spectators to watch the they he let everybody watch ali train for a dollar and the place was super packed, and it looks like it was totally worth it. Ali literally worked his magic and entertained everyone with jokes, with stories, and not, I'm seriously, Ali knew like a little bit of some magic tricks. It was kind of fun. <laughs> um, he talked a lot about knocking out Joe Frazier, and it was really cool and fun to see, but reporters made a note that there was not very much training going on, and it was more about the, the showmanship, like Ali just kind yeah. of talking about how <laughs> fucking awesome he was. Let me make sure it's still recording. We're good. Okay. <laughs> so um, he didn't just talk about knocking out Joe Frazier. Ali, actually, like this is a really dark part of Muhammad Ali that I don't like, that a lot of other people don't like. Just the way he would talk about other fighters. And with Joe Frazier, he would whitewash him and he would call him the white man's champion. That the only person that would be calling up Joe Frazier to congratulate him would be Richard Nixon. And that, you know, Frazier was a, a favorite amongst white Southerners. And Frazier was literally born into the same racist bullshit that Muhammad Ali was born into. And the comments really felt very cruel, especially considering Joe Frazier's parents they like worked for sharecroppers. Like, so wait, was he black? Yes, sorry, oh, okay. Joe Frazier. So, yes, he was a black man. Okay, um, but uh, you know, he grew up in like the same horrible yeah, conditions. Like a... uh, Frazier had grown up as a pretty tough kid, and he would train with punching bags filled with sand, corn cobs, and bricks. Oh my god! So that's his background. <laughs> like, and then he moved away from home like at a very young age. I think he dropped out at like sixteen or something. But he went to go live with an aunt. And he worked at a slaughterhouse, and then he slayed at the motherfucking gym, and he was known for having a really killer left hook. In Philly, they called Joe Frazier the Slaughterhouse Kid. Wow. Do you fuck with somebody <laughs> named the Slaughterhouse Kid? That's awesome. You do not. Slaughterhouse Kid. <laughs> uh, many people today feel that Ali was catering, actually, like the way he talked about Joe Frazier. Like, he would mimic him and, like, really get on his appearance, and it was really Aww. kind of confusing actually so um that he was catering to racist whites like for some reason and dude the whole weird, yeah. it's so bizarre because it's just a really kind of crazy time in american yeah. history i think anyway huh. so um 
long story short, Joe Frazier literally wanted to kill Ollie. Like he would talk <laughs> about like, I'm going to beat him till his guts come out. Like he was super pissed. Um, Madison Square Garden was selling tickets at 150% over their usual asking price for tickets. And I guess scalpers were charging $700 each for the tickets. Oh. I wouldn't pay $700 today for I something know, like, I desperately wanted to like- see. <laughs> I don't know. I should have looked it yeah. up. It's probably like $5 billion. Yeah. So even in uh, all the noisy distractions of jeering at each other, Ali's return to the ring was symbolic. Here was a guy that was briefly despised for rejecting the Christian faith as well as refusing to fight in an unjust war. But this time he's trying to get his title back that was so unfairly taken from him. People don't see him nearly as menacing. So now people are seeing this kind of softer side of Muhammad Ali that, you know, he's a little bit more grounded. He's sacrificed for his beliefs. He's not just your average draft dodger that's like running up to Canada so that he can smoke a bunch of weed. And, um, you know, he doesn't fit the stereotypes that people have put in their mind for what a, a draft dodger is. So the day of the fight, over 4,000 tickets are sold, selling out the event in just under two hours. Three million people around the world were expected to watch through closed-circuit television. Crowds in London uh, London theaters, they were watching at four in the morning. Troops listened over the radio in Vietnam. Um, given, the, given the gambling odds, Frazier was given a, a slight edge just because he'd been in the game you know, the most consistently. Um, the fight was so anticipated because both men were they were both title holders and n- neither of them had ever lost a fight. So oh, this was like uh, one of these men was walking away with their very first loss in their career. Yeah. So it was like, it kind of really was the fight of the century. Yeah. I'm going to tell you the list of people that showed up to this fight. Ed Sullivan, Diane Keaton, Bob Dylan, Woody Allen, Marvin Gaye, Isaac Hayes, Hugh Hefner, Joe Lewis, and Frank Sinatra, who was there taking photos for Life magazine. Wow. Because of course he was. <laughs> so, dude, people wow. saw this fight. Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner showing up, of course, he got a little bunny on his arm. Um, And I guess Richard Nixon, for sure, they know that he did watch the fight uh, in the White House. So Ali made one of his many famous predictions, saying, Joe Frazier's going to fall in six. Spoiler alert, he did not fall in the sixth round. Uh, When the two fighters met in the center of the ring for the ref to tell them to have a nice, clean fight, Frazier reportedly told Ali with a convincing look, I'm going to kill you. Like, he literally <laughs> looked Ollie in the eye and said, I'm going to kill you. Oh, so when the bell sounded at the start of the fight, the men rushed each other fast, um, both anxious to destroy the other man. Ollie did well the first couple of rounds and even got a little cocky. This is what's crazy. Again, he's not training. Like, he's so out of shape. Yeah. And then, like, Joe Frazier pushes him up against the ropes and Ollie looks back, like, really cocky and sh- starts shaking his head like... <laughs> this loser (laughs) and then joe frazier starts like beating his ass (laughs) so it was like i feel like muhammad ali kind of had it coming because he was being a little bit of a dick um frazier was relentless i guess frazier's plan was to beat the ever-loving shit out of him which you know again that's boxing so uh he i guess they said he hit every single part of ali's body like you can watch him it's like bicep forearm chest he even gets a little under the belt you know where like the ref couldn't see i mean he was just trying to literally punch anywhere and everywhere that he could so this isn't to say that muhammad ali did not fuck up joe frazier frazier's face was so smashed dude it looked bad the two went all 15 rounds the crowd would like Remember, he was like, I'm going to knock him down in six. Yeah. So when the sixth round bell rings and he's not down, this crowd starts like kind of giving Muhammad Ali some shit for not being yeah. right. And because uh, he grossly underestimated Frazier. Frazier wanted to win more than Ali. But more importantly, like they said, Frazier needed to win because yeah. of all that shit that Muhammad Ali was saying, like he needed to win that fight. So the final bell rings at the end of the fight. Security has to hold people off from, like, rushing the ring. Like, I don't know what people think they're going to do when they get there. <laughs> yeah. But, like, people are trying to rush the ring. Um, and it is uh, it is in Joe Frazier's favor. And this gives Muhammad Ali his very first professional defeat. <laughs> so know. that hurt. But I think he needed that. Yeah. Um, Ali's jaw was swollen so badly that his team sent him to the hospital for x-rays. Doctor one, doctors wanted to keep him overnight, but Ali refused, saying he didn't want to give Frazier the satisfaction of putting him in the <laughs> hospital. Uh, but Ali had been out of the game for years. 
This is so sad. Hunter S. Thompson wrote that Ali's defeat was a proper goodbye to the 60s. It's like, ouch, when Hunter S. Thompson (laughs) writes that about you. Uh, When the press interviewed um, Ali after his jaw had healed up a little bit, he looked, like, so defeated. Like, you could see it in his face. He, like, hated everything. Um, But uh, he said that he would take the defeat like a man and he would get past the loss. One reporter said he may have lost the fight that night, but he won the hearts of America. (laughs) But, like, he did because it's, like... You can see it like, oh, this guy is totally experiencing pain. And maybe I relate to him just a little bit more. He's not that cocky dickhead that he was like five years ago. How do they, sorry, how do they like decide who wins the fight? It's just kind of like, I think it's based. Yeah. Yeah. So like the judges, they score each round. I feel that I don't know as much as I should about boxing, but yeah, it's just how many punches did you get in? Did they land? Did, were you swinging for the fences? Did you defend yourself? Like all that shit. Um, so Frazier's all fucked up. He couldn't walk the next day. His eyes were swollen shut. He couldn't urinate. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Uh, he had to check himself into the hospital. And he was out fairly quickly. But, like, I guess it was a little bit of a dangerous situation there for yeah. Joe Frazier. Um, and then Ali, you know, he kind of, like, just says things randomly. He's like, Joe Frazier's going to be my last fight if we fight again. <laughs> it wasn't. But, like, he just says shit sometimes. Um, But he said he wanted to spread the message of Elijah Muhammad and felt like he couldn't proselytize and box at the same time. So even though Ali and uh, had his Muslim name revoked, he was still using it and he was still associating with members of the nation of Islam. So he's like technically out, but he's not really out. He's Muhammad Ali, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And plus Herbert, Herbert Muhammad, the Elijah Muhammad's son was still his boxing like manager. So And he pocketed a third of Muhammad Ali's profits. Oh, a yeah. third? That's a lot. Can you imagine? two point five? A third of $2.5 wow. $2. million for doing nothing? Yeah. That's awesome. Like, yeah, well, for him, not for Ali. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for his career, he had burned through most of his collective $7 million in earnings. Um, plenty went to maintaining homes, cars, and family things, but a lot went to charity. On an average day out on the town, he'd often end up giving all of his money away to anyone that said that they needed it. Sometimes he'd li- literally give people the clothes off of his back. His wife, Belinda, said that he could leave the house with $30,000 and come back with nothing. Oh his biggest passion in life was to make people happy, so he would just... Here you go. Have some money. Like he knew like people. Crazy, yeah, yeah. I actually think it's cool. I mean, it sucks if he's being screwed over by people that don't have yeah. the best of intentions. But the fact that he could just give and be so happy about it. I don't know. That makes me love him so fucking yeah. much. Um, but winning his title back is the least of all these problems. He was still waiting to see if he was going to jail or not. You know, he's on the Dick Cavett show and he's like, he's still waiting to go to jail, Ali. And he's like, any day now, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but Ali said that every day innocent people were dying in Vietnam. So why should he be scared of little old jail? Um, Ali was ready to sacrifice even more if he needed to. So when it went to the Supreme Court for the second time, the court justices at the time had literally no intention of hearing Ali's case, let alone even be bothered to crack the file open and see what all his conscientious objector status was all about with his, you know, uh, nation of Islam religion that they did not understand. But one justice did say, luckily one of them, one out of nine, finally had the rush of brains to say, if Muhammad Ali... If Muhammad Ali can't get his day in court, what chance do, like, the average American people have? So they were like, oh, well, maybe just to look good, we should have Muhammad Ali, like, have his day in court. So they, at the very least, listened to him. Because all of them at the time were, like, kind of openly saying, like, yeah, we're just going to uphold the conviction and, you know, move along. Yeah. So they did end up letting Ali's lawyer come and make a plea on his behalf. Um, Oh, I don't know if I got – okay, sorry. Anyway. Um. Oh no, I'm worried I missed part of, this? part of this. Oh no, I didn't. Sorry. Okay. okay. <laughs> um. So they did let Muhammad Ali's lawyer come and make a plea on his behalf. Um. And he continued to insist that Ali was not just a draft dodger. He who didn't feel like fighting. He was a pacifist, and that you know his his religion told him that he he really shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Thurgood Marshall, who had to recuse himself because he'd been a judge on the a justice the first time around that Ali was convicted, I guess none of the rest were still there, which kind of blows my mind. Like, you know how today a court justice for the U.S. Supreme Court will stay 
somehow 80 years they don't go away and it's like it's only been a few years and there's only one dude that was from the last time ollie was convicted man we live in wild times (laughs) so anyway so thurgood marshall had to sit out so now the nine count vote goes down to an eight so hopefully there's not a tiebreaker but three justices changed their mind where they said, okay, we think he should have gotten the conscientious objector status, but five said no. They upheld the conviction. So Ali still loses, but they're going to take the weekend to, to announce it. Um, and they asked Justice Harlan to write up uh, the court's opinion and explain why they made the decision. So Harlan's clerk, I feel bad, I forgot, I didn't get the guy's name. He'd been studying Muhammad Ali's case and following his story in the paper about the Nation of Islam, and he 100% believed Ali and insisted that, oh, and instead of helping write Harlan up this opinion that that was his job to do, that he did not do that night, instead he sent Justice Harlan a ton of information on the Nation of Islam, their views on war, like, hey, this is a real thing, please don't discount this, and then Judge Harlan, oh, sorry, let me, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm getting all excited, so... (laughs) Because the clerk was also familiar with, I guess, Jehovah's Witnesses in the 50s, they all got their conscientious objector status. Um, They were like, our religion says we can't fight. And they were like, okay, then you can't fight. So he was like, well, why can't the Nation of Islam get the same damn thing? Um, So Harlan looks at all this information and he changes his mind. So it makes the vote instead of five to three, it's now four to four. So now it's like, ah, this still means nothing. Like, it's still a blank slate. Like, his no progress has not been made. But... Um, so it does make the vote useless. And one of the other justices called Harlan an apologist for black Muslims just because he read the shit on Nation of Islam and like changed his mind anyway. Um, but this allowed the justices that favored Ali at the time to look up any discrepancies in the case. And they did find one. The state of Kentucky had not offered one single shred of evidence that Ali was not eligible for the conscientious objector status. So since no reason was ever given for the rejection of Ali's conviction, the justices had no choice but to vote in favor in his favor because he was denied the due process of law. Hmm. Throwing out the whole thing and giving Muhammad Ali his freedom back, and it fucking took long enough. So at the time that the news is released, Muhammad Ali was in the south side of Chicago buying an orange at a small market. After Ali left, the clerk at the counter heard the news over the radio. He chased down Ali, told him the good news, and gave the man a much-needed hug. It was sweet when Ali was like, he was crying and hugging me and telling me I was free. And, you know, it was just so cool. And then I think someone actually got a picture, snapped a picture with Muhammad Ali surrounded by all these people in Southside Chicago, like, just celebrating with them. Like, fuck yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, the the, uh, area explodes with joy and... um, reporters tried to ask Ali like how do you feel about the court system now like I feel like they were trying to trip him up to be like yeah you know they really brought me justice and but Ali's like nope you know I mean this is cool for me but injustices are still happening all over this country and we need to remember those people I'm happy about mine but you know other people are still getting screwed over so okay this is all happening for Muhammad Ali everyone shut the fuck up and listen to me Joe Frazier the stocky, tough-as-nails dude, nicknamed the slaughterhouse kid with a mean left hook that just about took Muhammad Ali himself out, was touring Europe with his soul band called The Knockouts. And I gotta be honest, it was not too bad. But Joe Frazier, I don't know why it was so upsetting. He was, like, in a silk shirt and, like, bell-bottom velour pants singing, like, some <laughs> funky, like, soul stuff. And, yeah. again, not bad, but it was, like such a drastic difference between this guy with this swollen face and he's bloody and he's beat the shit out of Muhammad Ali. And he's like, just like (laughs) stat, like snap dancing a little bit up on a stage in Europe. And that was funny. Like, I don't remember an interview with Muhammad Ali. He's like, who told Joe Frazier he could sing? (laughs) But anyway, here we go again. So, um, Ali earned his right to fight anywhere, anytime in the U.S. He fought nine times in 15 months, just waiting for his chance to get at Joe Frazier again. But uh, fighting isn't going too well, and his marriage is always rocky. Sports writers felt like he'd lost his spark, um, the spark that he'd once had, and that he didn't deserve a rematch with Frazier. So instead of uh, Frazier defending his title against Muhammad Ali, like everyone was expecting him to, Frazier fought a very young George Foreman instead the grill guy on tv that you know 
Nuh-uh. Yes. That what? is the same George Foreman. <laughs> when you said professional that, professional boxer. Thought, yes. I was like, no. <laughs> yes. Real professional boxer. And dude, George Foreman killed out there. He is a wow. big, scary dude out there That's in the hilarious. ring. No wonder he sells the fucking. Fuck yeah, he does. He's <laughs> like, I'm a retired boxer and I sell shit that grills me. So oh I've found in college campuses all over this <laughs> continental <laughs> United States. I don't know why it's not just continental. I'm sure Alaska and Hawaii has oh. George Foreman girls too. <laughs> um, so anyway, Ali had time to kill. He's not getting his title fight. So, uh, you know, he bought some property in Pennsylvania in 1972 to build the ultimate training grounds in Deer Lake. There he met a very young man named Larry Holmes who had only shown up that day to meet his idol, but the interaction became a budding friendship. And Ali was a true mentor to Holmes, this young guy who worshipped Muhammad Ali. And Holmes was a sponge that absorbed everything Muhammad Ali taught him, and he put his own spin on it. The only re- reason I'm mentioning Larry Holmes, um, who was a, a damn fine boxer, um, is because they t- the two would eventually meet in the ring, and that would be Muhammad Ali's last fight oh, is really? with this wow. guy, Larry Holmes. Yeah. It's very sad. Remember that fight with George Foreman and Joe Frazier? The Grill King. Foreman was known for knocking his opponents the fuck out. Like, yeah. just laying them out cold on the floor with, like, little birdies floating around their heads and shit. Um, short story short, Foreman sent Frazier to the ground six times, and the ref stopped the fight at one minute and 35 seconds in round two, making George Foreman the new heavyweight champion. Joe Frazier, this big fight that Muhammad Ali was hoping to get his title back from is not going to happen anymore, or at least not for the not for the title, but it it shocked a lot of people, and Muhammad Ali was pissed. He was like, man, that dude just caught us, caused us uh, to lose millions of dollars. Like, we could have made so much money off of the second fight, and you fucked us. Yeah. But anyway, so. Um, uh, so sorry. I have to find my place. Okay, so. But anyway, uh, Ollie doesn't give a fuck if George Foreman has the, the title or not because he feels like he's going to get it from anybody who's got it. Um, but before he fights George Foreman, he has to fight some other people. So he fights a lesser-known guy named Ken Norton, who is an ex-Marine and not much. he didn't have much boxing experience. The fight was shown on live TV on ABC's Wide World of Sports, where millions of people got to watch Muhammad Ali get his jaw broken. And getting the shit beat out of him by this ex-Marine, Ken Norton. Um, Ali had to go to the hospital, get his jaw wired shut. While recovering, he received a letter that said, The butterfly has lost its wings. The bee has lost its sting. Your mouth has been shut up for all time. After getting out of the hospital, Ali taped that letter to the gym, uh, to his, I'm sorry, to the wall of his gym for inspiration. The loss that he got from Ken Norton was the wake up call Muhammad Ali really needed and it worked. He got real with his training and he did not stop because his ego couldn't really carry him through anymore like it used to. Um, in his rematch with Ken Norton, which was, he was adamant about, he was in much better shape and won the fight. So it was looking good for Muhammad Ali. The next fight was his redemption with Joe Frazier. Both men had the same strategy for beating each other, get shredded and destroy the other one. So one reporter about Joe Frazier's training said that he trained like a man hammering a strip of hot steel. (laughs) So like they are both training fucking hard to beat the shit out of each other. So like I said, Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, now it's a personal thing. It's not about the belt. It is about just beating the shit out of each other. So when they meet on an ABC like news show to promote their upcoming bout, they get in a very uncomfortable scuffle. They have they get fined five thousand dollars for having a dick measuring contest on TV. Basically, um, anywho, at Madison Square Garden, the fight was on. When they met each other in the ring, Ali was implementing some of his old style of like foot shuffling. It almost looked like he had it back, mm-hmm. um, allowing him to dance yet again. The two men pummeled each other for f- all fifteen rounds, giving Ali the win. Uh, with each man having the win against each other, people were crying out for a third match, you know, like just one more yeah. to see like who the better fighter is. And both men wanted it, but not before Ali tried to get his title back now from George Foreman. George Foreman, who stood at an impressive six foot four, 225 pounds. Does that didn't look like he's six foot four? No, I was like, I want to look him up right dude, now. You should, as a, in like, like, at like 25 years old, that dude was 
buff as shit, scary looking. Not scary. He had like kind of a sweet face, yeah. but like um, just a big shredded dude. So anyway, Ali knew this was not going to be an easy victory. He spoke about Foreman, though, the same way he talked about everybody, where he just shit talked him. He's like, George Foreman, he's a sissy fighter. <laughs> but classic Ali. Mm. Are you looking at him? Yeah. He's a big dude. That's crazy, yeah. Yeah, he fought in the Olympics in, like, 1968. Oh, I'll get into that. But, like, yeah. Okay. Sorry. It's, dude, all these people. You just, so I can't believe all of these people crossed paths. I've passed. I had no idea. So, anyway, the person promoting the Ali Foreman fight was none other than Don King. Have you ever heard that name? Mm-hmm. Don King? Okay. I remember the 90s. heard a lot about Don King. He's the guy with the hair. He's a black dude with hair that's, like, goes straight up it's almost like he's been shocked a little <laughs> okay. bit if you've ever seen him like no. I've, yeah, okay anyway but he is a real fast smooth talker um he did spend four years in prison on manslaughter char- charges for beating another man to death oh. that's neither here nor there don king was a self-proclaimed hustler he compared himself to pt barnum and sold himself uh to the nation of islam leader elijah muhammad who had quietly reconnected with muhammad ali um, Don King was not even Muslim, but he still got Elijah Muhammad's blessing to promote the boxer better than um, Ali's current promoter, which was a Jewish man named Bob Aram. King promised um, Ali payment up front if he used King as a promoter. Aram didn't think that King could pull it off um, because he has to get both fighters in on it. He has to get both fighters to agree to the fight for the right price in the right area, and he needs all this financial backing for it. So, you know... Ali's current promoter is like, there's no way he's going to be able to get all of this shit. Like, cause he's promising $5 million and I'll pay you up front. He's like, Bob Aram's like, you're never going to get that. So, I mean, all the Don, Don King was a smooth talker. He did end up getting that money. Um, he ended up getting that money by going to Zaire, which was run by a dictatorship to fund the fight. So Zaire is better or is now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo. So Ali said that this was a fight for black people, for freedom and for the revolution. People said it was the revolutionary fighter against the counter-revolutionary fighter. Ali, much like he did to Frazier, called Foreman the white man's champion. At the Mexico City Olympics in 1968, you might recall the image of two young black, um, I think they were track and field stars, um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. They're both holding up fisted um, or gloved fists in the air while the Star Spangled Banner is playing. Are you familiar with that? They're up on their podium and it's, they they didn't have gloves, but there was a guy that won silver medal because it was two black Americans that won. It was, they won gold and bronze, this guy in the middle. Um, he was like German or Swiss or something. I don't remember. He had two black gloves, but they both were talking about like trying to make some kind of mini demonstration about everything going on in America. It's so like tumultuous and everything. So he gives these two black guys, his gloves, one has a left foot fist, one has the right fist and they're both holding it up. All the star spangled banners playing. It's just like a really cool yeah. image. Um, you know, because it's not too, when, when the 1968 Olympics happen, it's not too long before where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. There's violent protests in America, so it's, like, bad. When George Foreman wins his gold medal in boxing, he takes a little American flag out of his trunk and he waves it around. (laughs) So people are like, what the fuck, George Foreman? It was an interesting reaction, but hey, you know what? The man loves his country. Okay, whatever. Moving on. So uh, we're in Zaire. Zaire's getting ready for this fight. Mobutu Sese Seko who is the president of Zaire, had gotten his power in a Belgium and U.S.-backed military coup, USA number one. Mobutu Sese Seko was known for torturing and killing his own opponents uh, in the political arena and stealing the country's profits. So how did Mobutu Sese Seko pay for the fighters, their $5 million earnings, and funding for infrastructure for the fight? He stole it from the people that needed it most his own people that were suffering under his leadership. So Zaire is pumped though, that Muhammad fucking Ali is coming to see their country. Over 5,000 fans greet him when he arrives. Foreman did not quite get the same numbers when he arrived. Ali loved to go out and interact with everybody. And I guess they would shout at him, Ali Bomoye, which means Ali kill him. (laughs) So (laughs) 
people were like chanting that at him. So uh, they wanted him to kick Foreman's ass, and uh, cause, but Foreman like stayed indoors. He didn't really like interact much with people. Yeah. Um, I think he felt uncomfortable <laughs> uh, during training. Foreman received a cut over his eye when another boxer accidentally caught him with an elbow. His doctor claimed that the cut could take weeks to heal. He asked to postpone the fight, and it may not seem like that big of a deal, but because of the season they were in, uh, there was a fear that monsoons would come, and if the fight was fought too late, then it would have to get canceled altogether just because the weather was going to be, like, way too insane. So everyone was scared then that George Foreman was going to try and leave the country. Like, if he leaves, he is not coming back because he (laughs) hates it here. (laughs) So... He asks, George Foreman asks, can I get a second opinion in France? And Mobutu Seseko says, absolutely not. And they take his fucking passport away. Like, bitch, you are here and you are fighting. So the fight was pushed slightly back to October 30th at 4 a.m. Zaire time. So when the fight was postponed, Belinda returned to the States, meaning Ali's eyes could wander around for other women. He saw at least two other women while he was in Africa. And when Belinda returned, Ali accused her of sleeping with other men. Typical fucking man is all I have to say. So this is the time he meets a woman named Vanessa. And by the time they leave Africa, he has a secret ceremony and he marries her. So he marries two women at the same time. Muhammad Ali? Mm -hmm. Let me check and make sure I'm still recording. Oh, thank God. Okay, we're good. All right. So. Even with all the love and support Muhammad Ali is getting, everyone really thought that Foreman was going to win this fight. They were like, he's just younger. He's in better shape. Like, he's not as showman-y. Mm-hmm. And, um, but Ali was in better shape, too. And he was... Oh, sorry. I, like, fucked up my shit. Anyway, so Muhammad Ali, Ali is training, too. So the fight is dubbed the Rumble in the Jungle. <laughs> so it begins. Ali's technique was actually a pretty good one. He implemented his famous dope-on-a-rope strategy by letting the ropes help absorb the striking blows from George Foreman, getting the younger fighter to tire out. So every time Foreman threw a body shot, Ali would counter with a headshot. Foreman threw out some pretty profound punches, but uh, Ali did end up getting the better of him for several rounds. Finally, in the eighth round, Muhammad Ali successfully knocks out George Foreman, causing the place to erupt. Like, people are like, what? Like, they lose it because they're so pumped. Um, Because this is seven years after being exiled uh, from the boxing world for his beliefs, for his convictions. Ali was once again the heavyweight champion. People felt like it was a victory for third world countries. They And uh, those that had originally admonished Ali for his beliefs were now praising him. He even got to visit the White House. Um, sorry, I know it's getting late, Laura. I've only oh, got like okay. uh, a couple more pages. Okay. Um, oh, here we go. Okay. On February 25th, 1974, uh, four, Ali got the word that Elijah Muhammad had passed away. Elijah's younger son, Wallace, would be replacing him. So soon Muhammad Ali would swear allegiance to Wallace Muhammad, who was much more forward thinking than his father. Wallace pushed for more inclusion and stepped back from the more racist bits, allowing Ali to work with a lot more different kinds of people. But wherever Ali traveled, Belinda and Veronica were not far behind. At first, the press thought Veronica was a babysitter or maybe one of Belinda's family members. People started to crack the code that Vanessa was Muhammad Ali's wife when Belinda would walk around introducing Veronica as ollie's other wife so she's like vanessa yeah this is just his other wife (laughs) but belinda had chosen her name uh like ollie and she started to go by kalila um and she just kind of accepted her husband's infidelity she was like oh fuck it i guess this is what it is you know (laughs) which is too bad because i don't know women she shouldn't have to put up with that shit uh, Muhammad Ali fathered other children by other women. Um, if you don't mind that kind of lifestyle, have at it. If it's hurting someone, though, maybe don't do that. So in July of 1975, Ali announced that he would indeed be fighting Joe Frazier yet again, but this time in the Philippines, and it would be known as the Thrilla in Manila. <laughs> so <laughs> even though each uh, has won one fight against the other, they still hate each other. There is no love lost between these two. They still haven't figured out how to respect each other either. So the fight was put together much like Zaire. Um, They went to a horrible dictator to fund the whole thing. So the Marcos family at the time had control of the Philippines. I would encourage anyone to look up Imelda Marcos's shoe collection, of which she had over a thousand pairs of shoes. This lady was crazy. Anyway, uh, 
as again, as much as I love Muhammad Ali, once again, he does not take his training seriously. And it's so frustrating. Like, why does he do this? So sometimes his ego could be a little hard to stomach. The first few rounds of the Frazier fight, he he did well. This is, you know, the third one. And he even probably won those rounds. But after that, Frazier was a hurricane of blows and fists of fury rained down on Ali. By round 10, both men were exhausted. And I don't mean they just looked tired. I mean, they looked like they were on the point of death like the way they were panting and heaving breathing and muhammad ali is like his shoulders are slumped and his eyes are half closed like dude they were fucking going hard so um both of frazier's eyes were nearly swollen shut he took a lot of hits to the head frazier's trainer who had seen four boxers die in the ring told frazier that it was over despite the boxers protests they let him go on just a little bit longer. Frazier fought a couple more rounds, but at the end of the 14th, he didn't even know where his corner was. He had to be led to it. The fight was called in Ali's favor, and when Ali found out he'd won, he collapsed onto the ground. And apparently, he urinated blood for weeks. For weeks. Yep. And uh, about the fight, Ali said, we went to Manila as champions and came back old men. So (laughs) when Ali um, was asked how he felt about Joe Frazier, he spoke more positively about the man and praised his skills. But when Ali spoke, this is like where you start to see it. Like he speaks very, like a lot slower. So people suspect, oh no, I already said that. But um, yeah, this is where like that brain degeneration starts to come in. And, like, he's slowly not Muhammad Ali anymore. So now Kalila was officially separated from her husband. She'd put up with enough of that shit. No more affairs. She was tired of the accusations. And the two finally divorced, which, of course, was hard on the family. But Ali had a backup wife. It was cool. He's got Vanessa. So she's pregnant now. And even though he wasn't doing as well physically, he continued to fight for bigger payouts to help support his many expenses. His doctors ran tests and worried that his kidneys, his kidneys, sorry, kidneys, (laughs) his kidneys would fail if he continued to punish them uh, like he had been doing through the boxing. So everyone was begging him to stop his kids, his family, like everybody. Um, his speech was now very, very noticeable. He would ask friends and family if he sounded different, which he did. But the only person he was really listening to was Herbert Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad's son. And Herbert didn't mind pushing Ali to keep fighting because remember, he gets a third of all of his profits. So like, yeah, dude, you better fight again. I got a new car to buy. So he just keeps pushing these fights. And so does Don King. Um, and then, um... So, oh, so then here comes this kid, Leon Spinks. He's a nobody. He has almost no credentials. He has seven fights under his belt. Ollie goes into it overconfident yet again. Oh, I got it on this kid. I know what I'm doing. And, um, yeah, so Ollie loses because he's not (laughs) taking it seriously. And, uh, you know, he begs his trainers, like, or his his promoters, like, please, please let me have a rematch with this guy. Because this is, if you lose the... If you lose to a guy, you lose your title. Like, you're not the heavyweight champion anymore. So it went to Leon Spinks, this kid who has seven wins under his belt, because he wasn't taking the damn fight seriously. So, but anyway, so he begs for a rematch. The promoters give it to him, and they're like, um, you know, only if you promise to retire. So this made Ali focus like a motherfucker. He wanted that title back. He did indeed get that title back from the lesser known 24 year old Leon Spinks at 35 and oh I'm sorry Leon Spinks at 35 years old Muhammad Ali was the first person to win his title back three times that year he quietly retired and went on a farewell tour uh, followed by promoting products and making some appearances and movie on movies and tv um, he basically got really bored Ali wanted to get back in the ring and did so in defiance of his friends and family Ali fought Larry Holmes so remember that guy that he met all those years ago he had mentored him taught him you know everything he knew but he's going to fight Larry Holmes. In 1980 in Las Vegas, the two men went at it despite Muhammad Ali's brain issues. And to put it bluntly, it was not a fight. Ali stood there and just got wailed on for several rounds. Everyone had to sit and watch every painful minute of Muhammad Ali not defending himself and getting destroyed. So, like, even Holmes begged Ali to stop. They're in the ring fighting begs Ali to stop, Ali just cusses him out. (laughs) So he's like, all right. So he just keeps punching Muhammad Ali. Um, But eventually his corner called the fight. They were like, nope, okay, you're done. We don't give a fuck if you want to keep fighting. You're not fighting. You're done. 
During the press interview, he claimed he'd overdosed on thyroid medication. Um, but during this talk, his speech is so slow. Like now everyone knows like, okay, this is like, you're, there's something wrong. He's almost 40. He's trying to fight dudes in their twenties. Um, but at least Ali finally retired for good, especially as his condition worsened. People didn't know he had Parkinson's and was finally diagnosed mm-hmm. in 1984. So his personal personal relationships were fail- falling apart too. He'd been cheating on Veronica. Oh shit! Have I been calling her Vanessa? Oh well, her name is either Veronica <laughs> or Vanessa. One of the two. My apologies, <laughs> Veronica Nessa. Uh, the two had divorced. So he married. Uh, he married again, dude. He could oh just God. find all of them. But he married a younger woman. Her name was Lonnie. And you know what? She actually seemed pretty good for Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. She helped him resolve his his many financial issues because he would just let money flow wherever. He like had no track of where money was going because he was making so much of it. Yeah. So he did have a big heart. He was always helping people, but sometimes bad ones would get in there and get want for more for themselves. Lonnie kind of helped sort out the moochers from the people that really needed it. And then this is oh, this is where I started to cry in the documentary. Aww. In Atlanta in 1996, Ali was offered to light the torch for the Summer Olympics. At first, he refused because he hated his appearance. He was, like, embarrassed by it. You know, he was, like, he would, like, even recoiled a couple times at his own appearance. Like, oh, I just, I hate my face, you know. Um, But he was scared. He's like, no, everyone doesn't want to see me shaking up there, like, trying to light this torch. And a friend convinced him. They were like, please do this. Like, I think you need to do this. You gave the world so much. People want to love you back. Like, let people love you back. So he does it. So, oh, my God, it was so sad. So, like, they're running with a torch. And the swimmer is running up this big, giant ramp. No one knows Muhammad Ali is going to be there. It has not been announced. And all of a sudden, boom, Muhammad Ali is standing right there with this torch. He's kind of shaking, holding his torch out. She, like, lights it for him. He does it by himself. He lights the fucking torch. It's just, like, flame on a string that goes up and lights a torch, like, way up on a tower. And Dude, it was fucking beautiful. I fucking cried so hard. Anyway, okay, moving on. Ali did, and, like, after the Olympics and everything, and it was a very inspirational moment, everyone got to see him, like, everyone did love it, but Ali did openly reflect about his mistakes in his career. He felt very horrible about the things he'd said, especially about Joe Frazier, though in the end, Frazier never did forgive Muhammad Ali. (laughs) He was like, nope, until I die. I fucking hate you. So he also said dismissing Malcolm X was definitely one of his life's biggest regrets. After 9-11, Ali defended the Muslim religion and said anyone using it for hate was twisting the Quran's words. On November 9th, 2005, George W. Bush awarded Muhammad Ali with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. That same year, a museum for Muhammad Ali opened in Louisville, Kentucky, and I personally cannot wait to go. Um, But this time, uh, oh, I'm sorry. By this time, Muhammad Ali's conditioned, again, it's only getting worse. So he had good days and bad days. His daughter said when he was having a good day, day, it was like an entire day of sunshine. On June 2nd, 2016, Muhammad Ali checked into a hospital in Scottsdale, Arizona for some um, respiratory issues. On June 3rd at 8.30 p.m., his doctors disconnected him from his ventilator and he slowly, quietly passed away peacefully at 74 years old. Love him or hate him, Muhammad Ali had an incredibly extraordinary life. Boxer, activist, poet, fighter, warrior, Muslim, conscientious objector, humanitarian, philanthropist, vindicator, and lover of all people with devotion and appreciation for the well-being of the downtrodden, Muhammad Ali was buried at Cave Hill Cemetery. His tombstone reads, service to others is the rent you pay for your room in heaven. And about uh, Muhammad Ali, Bob Dylan wrote, If the measure of greatness is to gladden the heart of every human being on the face of the earth, then he truly was the greatest. (gasps) Muhammad Ali. Oh, my God. So Ken Burns documentary. It's on PBS. Uh, Several hours of watching time, (laughs) but it is enthralling. Every second is worth it. I know you got to go. I'm so sorry, Laura. The Last of Us is coming on right (laughs) fucking now. So we need to go. All right. All right. Um, Bye. Bye.